Let's pray. Father, here we are. We have just read the account, the, the amazing jailbreak account of your people, the Israelites, slaves in bondage in Egypt, saved by your mighty hand. Lord, we, uh, we pray this morning that as we consider such a great salvation that you would help us to, to stand in awe at your glory, at your power. Lord, that you would help us, your people, position ourselves rightly in life to walk faithfully because you are the God who has saved. You are the God that saves now and you are the God who will save until you bring us home. Lord, guard us from error. And as we turn to your word now, we pray that you would guide us in your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are some things in life that produce a certain unmistakable and appropriate kind of response. So let me give you some examples. Has anyone ever smacked their thumb with a hammer? Yeah, there's a universal response to that, which is some version of ow. Um, Hopefully it's an appropriate version uh, of Al. And I've seen some strong men before just close their eyes and kind of breathe in slowly. You know, it hurts uh, when, when you get a reaction like that. How about uh, if you're being tickled? There's a pretty universal response, a very appropriate response uh, to, to being tickled. And it involves you trying to get away from those fingers as quickly as you can as, as you're laughing to that stimuli. Many of us know what it's like to be exposed to a sudden and intense light. What's the natural response? Well, you squint, don't you? You can't even help it. You squint, and oftentimes you you shield your eyes from that light that's just flooded your, your retinas. Or my personal favorite, watching somebody take a bite of something entirely too hot. You know what I'm talking about, right? You just involuntarily, your jaw drops and your mouth's open and you're trying to like breathe around this really hot food and, and hold it together uh, for everybody else. There's just certain things in life that will elicit a natural and appropriate response from us. And as Christians, one of the natural appropriate responses to the salvation we have in Christ is singing. It's a heart and lips that overflow in praise, in sheer joy and gratitude for what God has done for us. So this morning we're just continuing in our summer sermon series where we're asking the question, how does Scripture shape our singing? We started a few weeks ago by looking at why we sing. What's the biblical mandate? What's the biblical impulse for singing all about? And, and then we, we looked at how God's people are instructed to sing through the grid of Scripture. Uh, last week, we had the privilege of hearing from a brother in Christ who's serving in missions in the Middle East, in the UAE. And uh, I know many of you were blessed by his time. If you ha- want to learn more about uh, that, that gentleman and his mission, um, focus is what it's called. We'd encourage you to go watch that ser- uh, sermon from last week or talk to us, and we'd love to get you connected uh, t- to Nissen. Anyhow, uh, today we're just continuing in this sermon series, and we're going to be looking for the next few weeks at examples, categories of songs that we see just embedded 
in Scripture. And today, we're going to see Scripture is just dripping with what we'll call songs of salvation. Songs of salvation. That is, songs that God's people sing as a response to being delivered. To being rescued from death. And in fact, that's the big idea. That's the overarching principle that we want you to see this morning from Scripture. If you don't get anything else, we want you to leave with this understanding. And if you're a note taker, I think we've got this. Yep, we got it right there for you to write down. We want you to know at Friendship Community Church, we want to embody this truth. Singing is a right and biblical response to being saved. When you're ransomed, when you're rescued from sin and death, there is a response, a natural right response, like biting into food that's too hot has a response. So having your soul saved by your creator, your redeemer, elicits a response from us. And one very appropriate and biblical response, friends, is singing. Which is why, here at Friendship Community Church, we want to do this well. Oh, how I dream and long, and, and as elders, as staff members of the church and, and lay leaders, we are working toward making this place, this community of Jesus followers, a place that just resounds with the praises of God. We've uh, made a biblical claim. It's a simple one, but we ought to back it up with Scripture. If, if singing truly is a right and even biblical response to our salvation, then, then let me take a moment here to give you some biblical examples, some scriptural evidence to support that. Now, I'm going rapid fire here, so you don't need to try to keep up with me. As a matter of fact, if your Bibles are still open to Exodus 14, stay there because we're just going to keep reading, and our home base today will be in Exodus 15. I've got some scriptures on the screen, though, because I want to begin doing some work helping us connect the dots to see that singing is more than just the pastor's passion. He's no good at it, by the way. But it's not just something that I care a lot about or the elders care a lot about or that Ruth Ann cares a lot about. No, this is a right response to our salvation. I'm going to just give you some rapid-fire verses. Psalm 118, Exhibit A. Psalm 118, verses 14 and 15. The psalmist writes under the direction of the Holy Spirit, The Lord is my strength and my... Huh. Just like... You trust the Lord to be your strength, follower of Jesus, so is he also your song. My strength and my song. He's become my, here it is, my salvation. Verse 15, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. So, question, where might you find singing? Well, you find singing in a lot of places, but one place you better find singing is in the tents of the righteous. In the place where salvation is to be found, there you will also find, says the psalmist, glad songs of salvation. How about this one? Psalm 40, verses 2 and 3. He, speaking of God, drew me up from the pit of destruction. That sounds serious. The pit of destruction? 
Yeah, out of the miry bog. Some of your translations might say the miry clay there in Psalm 40. He set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to God. Why this singing? What's the impulse behind the song of praise? Well, it's salvation. In one moment, you're in a pit of destruction. Your feet are mired in clay. You're in a a tough spot. And God takes His people from that pit of despair and plants their feet on a rock. What's their response? Praise. It's a right, natural reflex for the people of God. One more. Let's take one of perhaps the most iconic accounts of God's salvation, of God's deliverance in all of Scripture. Many of you know it. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you've probably heard of David and Goliath. That account of the uh, little shepherd boy who, no more than a teen, slays the mighty warrior, the giant, the champion of the Philistines. But did you know what follows immediately after that remarkable account of God's salvation? Deliverance of his people Israel from their Philistinian enemies. Well, I'll I'll read it to you. Right after 1 Samuel 17, that's David and Goliath, comes 1 Samuel 18, and we read in verses 6 and 7, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that's what we're talking about, the women came out from all the cities of Israel. What were they doing? Singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with songs of joy with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, let me level with you. Just how King Saul chooses to respond to this song is not so good. If you know the story, you know he doesn't have a very stellar response to this particular little ditty. But what I want you to see here is the reflex of the people. They've been saved from their enemies. And what's the natural response that flows from that salvation? It's it's singing. There's there's not one of us that would argue that we shouldn't talk about God and His salvation. We began our service in Psalm 107 with the exhortation that we should... We should say so if we're redeemed. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Now, what's the point? My point is, not only should the redeemed of the Lord say so, like we see in Scripture, but Scripture also shows us time and time and time again. I've just given you a couple simple examples that the redeemed of the Lord should also sing so. Singing is a right, faithful response to God's saving grace. This is, this is the driving point. Again, I know it's simple. I know it's basic. But, but our heart's desire here at FCC is that we would be a people emanating with the joy of the Lord. That His praise would ever be on our lips. That we would indeed be a people who say so and sing so when it comes to the redemption of God. 
So for the remainder of our time, with that truth, I hope, firmly fixed in your theological grid, I'd like us to spend the balance of our time here this morning just sinking our teeth into one of these salvation songs. In fact, it's, it's not just the first salvation song in the whole Bible, it's the first song that we have recorded in Scripture, and it's found in Exodus chapter 15. So again, I encourage you, get your Bibles open, have them in your lap or, or on your devices, ready to reference. Our, our, our hope, our desire is everything that we say comes right from here, right from the text. Uh, and so Exodus 15 is going to be home base. We're going to read this song because that's what Exodus 15 is. We're just going to read this song in its entirety. And then I simply want to uh, back up and highlight a few biblical themes, a few applicable scriptural principles for us to walk away with here in 2022. And so, so I'd like us to begin together. Exodus 15, verse 1. I've put it up on the screen because it's good that we have a bunch of different translations, but if we read a bunch of different translations together, it'll sound like mush. So, so let's read together the first verse of Exodus 15. This cues up the song. Ready? Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he is thrown into the sea. Very good. Question. We'll leave that slide up for a moment. What is the very first word of Exodus chapter 15? Yeah, it's not just in this translation in the ESV. It's in every English translation. It's indisputable because it's there in Hebrew. The word is then. Exodus 15 begins, then... Moses and the people of Israel sang, sang a song to the Lord. So my question for you is, when is then? When is then? Well, Exodus 15 is positioned very conveniently immediately after Exodus 14, which the bakers just read for us. Then is immediately following the miraculous deliverance of God's people at the shores of the Red Sea. Isn't that what we're talking about? This song flows on the heels of the salvation of God's people in response to their deliverance from Egypt and from Pharaoh's army. Israel sings. The first song we see here in the Bible. I just want, I want to point this out to you. This is a faithful reflex. I, I hope you got that in your grid. Now let me continue to read this song for you, this, this glorious song of salvation. Moses uh, pens the song or sings the song, uh, led along by the Holy Spirit, beginning in uh, verse 2 of chapter 15. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host, he is cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. 
You send out your fury. It confuses us. Excuse me. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. The floods stood in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead. In the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people Pass by, whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh, with his chariots and his horsemen, uh, horsemen excuse me, went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, we're not sure, and the, uh, the biblical commentators do a lot of arguing about what type of response Miriam has. Is, is Miriam merely echoing the, the first line of the song again and beginning it all over again with the women? Uh, is, is this more of like a repetition of the chorus kind of thing? Or might this even be Miriam and the women of Israel calling and responding uh, to the Israelite men as they're singing of God's goodness? We're, we're not sure. Uh, but what we see in spades is this principle we've been trying to lay before you. Those saved by God sing to him. It's just what we do. It's our natural and appropriate reflex. And, and so uh, what I'd like to do now that we've worked our way through this uh, amazing account of God's salvation. We've seen the song. I want to simply to highlight four biblical principles that we see featured here in this salvation song that we can learn from and grow in the grace uh, of the Lord. And, and perhaps no theme in Exodus 15 is more pronounced than this one. Here it is. We see this just dripping from this salvation song. The principle that God is a warrior. Did you know that? That's how we describe that's how the Bible describes God. God is a warrior and his enemies should tremble. Now, if you've been paying attention, 
a huge portion of the song we just read is centered around two sides of the same coin, the same theological coin. One truth flows straight out of the other one. The the first big biblical idea that they're singing about is that God is a warrior. They're, They're singing about God's warrior nature. How his might, how his power is unmatched. Look with me at verse 3. Pretty simple. The Lord, that's the covenant name for God. Lord in all caps, which you know is the name. A little slow, but we got it, okay? Yahweh, anytime you see that name in all caps, this is the covenant name for God. His special name that he, he shares with his covenant people, that he is saved, that he's redeemed. The name Yahweh. Yahweh is a man of war. The Lord, Yahweh, is his name. And flowing from that truth about God, about his nature, are a multitude of references right here in this song to the complete and utter destruction of God's enemies. I mean, just look at the strength of this language. Were you following the intensity of the language here? The horse and the rider you have thrown. That's the Hebrew word, literally, you have hurled into the sea. Verse 1, it's repeated in verse 4 and in verse 21. Look at verse 5. They sank into the depths like a stone. Echoed in verse 10, they sank like lead. God's right hand, verse 6, shattered the enemy. He consumed them, verse 7, like stubble. Yikes. I mean, right? This, this really happened. These were real people. Make no mistake about it, friends. Not only has God been a warrior of old, but this truth about God's power, his unmatched strength, his certain destruction of his enemies is still as applicable today in 2022 as it was back when he parted the Red Sea. This is still true about God. His nature, friends, has not changed. So, in the New Testament, when Jesus, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, steps onto the scene, He encounters, you don't have to flip there, I'll just cite it for you. He encounters in Matthew chapter 8, a legion of demons. You know what they say? When the legion of demons in the demoniac intersects paths with Jesus, they cry out before the Lord, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? What's the response of God's enemies to God, to Jesus the Son when he shows up on the scene? Sheer terror. Take James chapter 2, verse 19, where we're told it's good that you know that God exists, that you believe that He is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in essence, in nature, and character. And then James gives us a little aside. But even the demons believe that. And what? Tremble and shudder. You understand what we're trying to say? 
God is a warrior. And he wins. And his enemies have, do, and will forever tremble. They tremble. Let's pull up for air for a minute. And I, I want to ask the basic application question. We should do this every week as we're confronted with the truth of God's word. We've got to ask ourselves, how, how is this truth going to work its way out in my life today? How am I going to incorporate this in my walk to the Lord? Here's, here's my encouragement to you as we, we view God's warlike nature. It's not the only part of his nature or character. Yes, God's love. We like to quote that one and just sort of keep it alone. Scripture also says that God's spirit. It says that he's just. It says that he's a warrior. God's a lot of things. He's beyond you. But as we think now about who God has revealed himself to be as a man of war, Exodus 15.3, here's one way we ought to run with that. We ought to, as the people of God, reject complacency. Because we ought to reject complacent Christianity, which is easy to find here in this corner of Pennsylvania. Would you agree? We all grew up Christian. Most of us believe in the concept of God or the God of the Bible. In view of of who God has revealed himself to be. I'm asking, I'm pleading with you, reject this complacent notion that it's enough, it's okay for you to believe that God exists. No, his enemies tremble. They shudder at his existence. This is the same warrior God who says, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, whoever is not with me, is against me. Think about that for just a minute. If you're not moving in the same direction of Jesus, you're not just in like spiritually neutral ground. That doesn't exist. There's no such thing as spiritual neutral ground. You're either moving with Jesus, you're for him, or according to him, you're against him. Whoever does not gather with me, Jesus says, scatters. I want to ask you, follower of Jesus, are you gathering with him? Are you with him? Or functionally in your life, is he just some construct that you've checked a box and you believe in? No. May it be said of us here at FCC that we've rejected complacent Christianity. We are after wholehearted alignment with God's words and his ways. Here's the hard truth, friends. And we can all we can all fall into this. Some of us here are much better businessmen or businesswomen than we are followers of Christ. True? Some of us here are working harder at being better parents than we are followers of Jesus. Some of us students are better athletes or friends or students fill in the blank i want to ask you a fresh follower of jesus is he first is he your first love because in view of this high and holy god this warrior the lord is his name he's the lord of hosts the lord of armies hordes that's what that word means jehovah sabaoth 
as he commanded your priorities, your affections. He must, friends, he must. There's no lukewarm with Jesus. There's no room for middle ground. He is the warrior king, listen, who died to make peace with his enemies. This isn't a God who crosses his proverbial arms and waits for you to get your act together to, to serve him wholeheartedly. No, he's the God who extends such love to his enemies while we were yet in sin. That's when he loved us. He's a, he's a warrior. And Colossians 1.20 tells us that we have peace with this man of war through the blood shed by Jesus on the cross. Amen? It's good news. That's good news. Don't settle, friends, for complacent Christianity. We serve a warrior, and he's a jealous God. He wants all our love. Here's another biblical principle I think we see right here in this song of salvation. Exodus chapter 15. We see the principle of God's uniqueness. Of God's singularity. Theologians call this God's holiness. The word holy isn't in Exodus 15. But the, the theme is resonant. Look at verse 11. I want you to see it here. Look at verse 11. You catch the question? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You see, position right in the middle of this salvation song is this question. Is there anyone in your league, God? The clear answer is no. There's absolutely no one like God. And this is one of the things God's people sing about. We sing because our God is the God, the great God, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. He is superlative in his greatness. No other ruler, no other authority, no other little g God can remotely match who this Yahweh is that we've gathered to worship today. Listen, he's, he's just, this song is about how Yahweh, the warrior God, has just broken the back of Pharaoh and his mighty army. How he has humiliated the pantheon of the Egyptian gods. Isn't that what the ten plagues were all about? God just flexing on each one of these false gods in Egypt. And humiliating the world's military superpower and cultural capital. Perhaps the prophet Isaiah says it best. You write down this reference. We don't have time to turn there. Isaiah 44 Verses 6 to 8, thus says the Lord. Here's what God says about this topic. The King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and the last. Listen, besides me, there is no God. And then God asks the question, who is like me? Who is like me, God asks. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come, what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. 
All right, let's keep moving. Two more biblical principles we see at work in this salvation song. I want you to look with me at another critical truth nestled in verse 13. Here's the principle. Let's start with the big idea. We see here in verse 13 that the salvation of God's people hinges upon His steadfast love. The other side of that coin is their salvation has nothing to do with what they have done. Let's read it. Exodus 15, 13 again. You have led, speaking to God, Moses sings, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Some of your translations might have a different word than steadfast love there. It's a hard Hebrew word to to define the word is hesed maybe maybe you've he- seen it or heard of it before you're really supposed to say it with like that guttural hesed right why am i telling you this it's one of the themes of the entire scriptures and it's often translated from hebrew to I- english as steadfast love or loving kindness or faithful love God's faithfulness, his loyal love, his loving kindness, his steadfast love. That's what was the force that got this salvation done. You've led your people in steadfast love. Those whom you've redeemed, you've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. So tell me, friend. Where in this salvation song do you see the Israelites featured? Scan it. Where, where's the part in the song where we sing about what the Israelites did? Their valor in contributing to this salvation experience is not there. It's simply not there. You remember, I think it was Logan who read this in the account before the song, splitting the seas, God's people are quaking on the western side of the sea. And Moses speaks in Exodus 14, 14 and says, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Translation, would you all just shut up? Would you stop complaining? That word silent can also be translated to be calm, to be still. Just settle down because a salvation is coming and it is not yours. It's got nothing to do with you. This is an alien salvation. It comes from somewhere else beyond you. It comes from God's hesed, his steadfast love. That's what's redeemed. Interesting choice of words. Redeemed means to buy, to buy back. It's a slave market term. God's salvation has purchased them. As you look ahead to the cross, that's fairly appropriate, wouldn't you agree? Ephesians 2 tells us, under the new covenant, that our salvation has always worked this way. It's not by works so that no one can boast. Listen, if you belong to Jesus Christ, it's not because he picked you to be on his team, because you are awesome. It's because of his great love. We love him because he first loved us. The salvation of God, friend, I I hope this encourages you. If you're feeling beat up, if you're feeling tired, 
If you're looking at the, at the Christian life and what God requires of you, and, and you seem, let's just be honest, some of us might seem here this morning a bit stalled. Unable to move forward in our faith. You're wondering if, you, if you're enough, if you have what it takes to do what God has required. There's bad news and good news. The bad news is your fears are correct. You don't. And the good news is you serve a Savior who does. Friend, if we get our eyes off us and look to the Savior, what we will find is he is indeed enough. The salvation of God's people doesn't hinge upon how tightly you're holding to God. Our confidence comes from him holding on to us. And if you go reread John 10, if you're, if you're discouraged, you should do that this week. Go read John 10. What you'll find is no one slips out of his grip. No one escapes God's hand who belongs to him. All right. This is why, I, I, I'm just bringing it back to music, this is why we sing what we do. If you're struggling, if you're saying, gosh, how do, I know what you're saying, Zip. I agree with the facts that are coming out of your mouth. How do I do it? Well, just do what the Israelites did. One of the ways they grew into this faith was by singing it to themselves, by singing it out to God. So, so we should sing songs like, On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is shifting sand. I'm standing on the rock. Man, I don't feel like it. I feel like I'm falling apart. It feels like the wheels are coming off the bus. But I'm standing on Christ. Sing that song. Discouraged saint? How about this one? A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Victory in Jesus. My Savior forever. I love that one. Pastor Rick loves that one too, don't you, Pastor? <laughs> Let's sing our way. To belief sometimes, right? We know it. We know it's true. Now let's sing out those truths as a practical way to grow up and into them. Last, last thing I want you to see here from this beautiful salvation song. And this is a big deal at the end of the song. It's this. What God has done in the past. Look back now. What God has done in the past gives us confidence to sing about what he will do in the future. We talk about this all the time. I almost didn't want to even share this point with you. I was uh, kind of working through the points of the sermon with some, with some friends and some church leaders this weekend, and I was like, I, I feel like I say this all the time. I feel like I just say this constantly. It's here. It's just staring you in the face. I'm, I'm just going to ask, did you notice, did you notice, friends, when we read Exodus 15, which was about how God split the sea and saved his people, that a major chunk of this song is actually not about that. It's about the future. Did you see it? Look at the end. Verses 1 to 12 deal with the past deliverance of God that he wrought there at the Red Sea. While wow, look at it, verses 13 to 18 deals with Israel's future. They hadn't been here yet. 
Nowhere in verses 13 to 18. They're singing about Canaan. They're not there yet. They're singing about the future abode of God, His sanctuary. It's not built yet. Right? They're prophetically looking ahead by the Spirit of God. And what has happened in the past fuels their faithfulness, fuels their confidence for God in the future. Do you see? Look at verse, well just, just check out for verse 14. Verses 14 to 16. We see four. Four of Israel's future enemies listed. They're right there. Philistia, Edom, Moab, Canaan. When did they fight them? Well, they haven't. But they will. They're looking ahead and they're singing, God, you are the God who was, you are the God who is right now, and you are the God who will be. This land of milk and honey that you have for us is as good as done. Now, they'll waffle, you'll see that. But this is what helps us sing. Understanding. That when we look back to God's faithfulness of old, we gain the courage and the perspective to see rightly in the here and now. To look ahead. They actually, it's a bit of a taunt here at the end of the song, you see it? They start to write about the leaders of Edom and Philistia and Moab and Canaan. And, and what's the response of these leaders? According to the song, their response to God's people is going to be fear. It's going to be trembling. Look down, it's in your Bible. It's going to be hearts that melt. And isn't this precisely what we saw just a few weeks ago? We were preaching through the end of Hebrews 11. And we, we looked at the example in Joshua chapter 2 of Rahab and Jericho. Remember? I don't want you to turn there. You can write it down if you want to look at it later. Just, just listen. Maybe just close your eyes and listen to this prophetic song coming to fruition. This is Joshua 2. This is Rahab speaking. Rahab, Joshua 2. Before the men lay down, they're up on a roof. Rahab came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you. Know what they're singing about? The fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land. Listen to this language. Melt away because of you. Right out of Exodus 15. Melting in fear. Why? Why are they so scared? Listen. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Jericho, the mighty military fortress, is filled with Men of war, men of valors whose knees are knocking. Why? Right here. They read about the God of war who split the sea and it produced within God's enemies melting hearts. No spirit left in them. Don't miss the point here right at the end. What God has done in the past helps us, friends. It helps us to sing about the future. And salvation songs often do this. They help us build confidence, help us build assurance that the word, uh, the, the, the work that God says He's going to do to invoke Philippians 1.6, He is good for. He will complete the work He begun in you. 
began in you at the day of Jesus Christ. So our final application, it's time to button this up, is just to put this into practice, church. We're going to sing one more song. We've learned it a few weeks ago, and already, I'm proud of you, you're singing this one loud. You're latching on to this one. It's called Only a Holy God. So we're just going to do what we've seen modeled for us in Scripture. And I want you to hear the chorus before you prepare your heart to sing it with a pure heart. We're about to sing this. We're about to sing, come and behold him, the one and the only. And then we... And they sing about this, God's singularity. No one like you, God, the one and the only. Cry out, sing holy forever, a holy God. Come, friends, let's worship a holy God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now with gratitude. And we say in view of your past salvation, that we can take comfort, we can take peace, we can draw strength. Because we know you're good for it, God. You who began the good work in us will indeed complete it. God, forgive us for trusting in our own strength. Forgive us, God, for, for scanning the horizon and, and, and sinking and shrinking back in fear. But we pray that we, in view of your great strength, would with joy with gratitude, regardless of the circumstances we're walking through right now, God, with joy and with gratitude, would sing your salvation songs. And as we sing, God, we pray that you would be pleased and that you would take these mustard seeds of faith that you've given to us in Christ and make them bloom for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.